Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to the special edition of The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in today for Jake Tapper on this Monday. And we begin with the health lead, the coronavirus pandemic. Today, there is encouraging news. The vast majority of the country is seeing the number of new infections decrease. Hospitalizations are also on the decline. In a little more than a month, hospitalizations have plummeted by 44%. Yet the promise from the Biden administration to reopen schools remains unfulfilled. And as CNN's Jason Carroll reports, new guidance from the CDC is not focused just on the science. Students may be on vacation today, but mounting confusion and frustration from parents and teachers isn't taking a day off. After the CDC rolled out its new guidelines for reopening schools Friday, which focus on five strategies for in-person learning, including universal mask wearing, physical distancing, hand washing, cleaning and contact tracing. But the CDC also recommended full in-person learning only in places where levels of community transmission are low. The problem, according to a CNN analysis of federal data, almost 90% of American children attend schools in high community spread areas located in so-called red zones. As that transmission comes down, we'll be able to relax some of these measures. The issue has become a political landmine for the Biden administration, trying to get kids back into classrooms while also appeasing teachers unions and parents in hard-hit areas, many of which have demanded vaccinations and other measures before going back to in-person learning. The CDC director is saying the guidelines changed after holding meetings with parents and teachers. Direct changes to the guidance were made as a result of them. Telling Jake Tapper on State of the Union that science is behind all the guidance. The real point is to make sure that the science is consistent with our guidance, which is consistent to say until we can ensure that we have all those measures happening, that there would, the schools wouldn't be safe. This as health experts express cautious optimism as coronavirus cases and hospitalizations in the country continue to show signs of improvement. Daily cases falling from more than 300,000 in January to less than 100,000 now. However, there's also grave concern over the spread of more variants, seven different ones already found in the United States. I'm concerned about these variants because... Uh, We're not doing enough surveillance, so we don't know how widespread they are. Despite warnings, this past weekend was one of the busiest for air travel during a pandemic. More than 4 million people have flown since Thursday. States such as Montana have lifted mask mandates, New York now allowing limited indoor dining, while the demand for available vaccines still outweighing the supply. 
I know the Biden administration is hard at work at getting states more accurate information about how many vaccines are out there, but it's got to be done real quickly um, because it's impossible for states to plan. And Pamela, this late development, the biotech company Novavax says its scientists are working on a new version of its COVID uh, vaccine, one that would specifically target one of those variants, the South African variant. The research is still in the early stages, but if everything pans out, what they're hoping is that new vaccine would serve as a booster to target that specific variant, the South African one. Pamela. It's a really interesting development. Thank you so much, Jason. We appreciate it. And joining me now is CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Great to see you, Sanjay, as always. Hey, Pamela. The big talker among hey, parents, as you well know, is schools reopening. When is that going to happen? What does the science say? CDC director uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky admitted Friday that direct changes to the guidance were made as a result of conversations with teachers and their concerns. Does it seem to you like the CDC is really just trying to please everyone here? Um, yeah, I guess in, in part. I mean, I also think that, you know, what, what really strikes me, and I've talked to a lot of people over the last couple of weeks about this issue, is that, you know, you could look at the exact same data and come to different sort of uh, conclusions in terms of the strategy going forward based on your tolerance of risk. You know, I think that there's this idea that, like, how much risk are we willing to take when it comes to students, when it comes to teachers and staff as well? And that's in part what drives us. It's not, it's not like math. Two plus two mm-hmm. always equals four. It's that there's, there's some subjectivity to it. I think what is interesting is that if you look at the, the overall recommendations, they're going to sound very familiar. It's all the things we've been talking about for a year now, Pamela. But they also make this point, as Jason Carroll was just making, that, you know, the country is essentially on fire right now. There's just too much community spread just about everywhere. Just about every student lives in a community with too much community spread. So in those situations, do you want to aggregate lots of people together, for example, in a school? And what the CDC is saying, probably not. I mean, the numbers will continue to come down and it'll be easier, but, but probably not right now. But in light of what you just said, The science says, from what we know now, that schools are not contributing significantly to the spread of coronavirus. And I know part of that perhaps is because schools aren't open in those communities where they're they're red hot. But I want to ask you about this study I was just reading about recently. And I interviewed that the the doctor, one of the doctors who worked on it, that showed transmission of COVID is less in school than outside of school. Mm -hmm. So is the science then in favor of reopening schools? Could it actually help cut back the cases of COVID? Yeah, you know, look, and again, this is one of those things where it's so personal, right? I mean, because I have kids that we're making this decision all the time. So here's how we've looked at it. And this is after talking to lots of epidemiologists is that I think what we can safely say, it is possible to open schools safely uh, and have lower rates of transmission within the school as compared to the community. But what does that mean possible? What has to happen in order for that to take place? All those mitigation strategies have to be followed to a T, really. So for example, I don't know if you were talking about the Wisconsin study, Pamela, the the, uh, researchers you were talking to, but they did find 37% lower transmission in the school versus the community, but they also found 92% mask wearing adherence in, in, in that study as well. So if you go around the country, what is mask adherence in school? 
uh, schools, closer to 60, 65%. So, you know, it is possible, but all these things have to work. And there's some school districts that don't have the space to physical distance. They don't have adequate masking. They don't have adequate ventilation. So those are obviously going to be places that may have a much harder time opening safely. But it is possible if you have all the resources. If you have all the resources, and we heard Dr. Walensky talk yesterday to Jake uh, about, Jake Tapper, obviously, um, about, you know, max breaching mm -hmm. and how that's an issue. But I don't know how you guarantee that everyone who goes to these schools is wearing their masks all the time. And she also talked about what you just mentioned, the mitigation aspects, that that, that is needed. Uh, those are needed steps for schools to reopen. They're listed here on the screen, but not everyone is taking those steps. And so therefore the schools stay closed. Do you think that these recommendations are unattainable or unrealistic as all of these have to be followed in order for schools to be open? Uh, I, I think it may be challenging to say that every school district in the country can do this. We know certain school districts can. So I don't think it's unattainable in that sense. But, you know, there are school districts that still don't have some of the, they, you know, just the square footage alone may, may be a rate limiting step in terms of actually being able to, to meet these, uh, these mitigation strategies. I think that's the challenge. And also, you know, mask, mask wearing, I did the story with the NFL last week, Pamela. After all was said and done, the NFL had a 0.08% positivity rate. You asked the chief medical officer, out of all the things you did, what accounted for that? And he said, it was absolutely mask wearing. When we, were, when we were very, got very diligent about it, we saw the numbers plummet. We saw people not becoming newly infected. So uh, can schools do that? Do they, have, you know, do they have enough masks? Will there be adherence to that, those mask policies? I think that makes a huge difference. On that list you just showed wasn't testing either. Forget yeah. about the vaccines for a second, but testing. There's uh, studies that come out that say if you have regular testing in schools, you can drop infection rates by close to 50%. So um, they're, they're, I think it can be done safely, but the schools have to have the resources to be able to do it. Yeah, which is a hard for parents to swallow because you want just a simple answer, right? And it's not so simple. You have these seven mutations as well. I'm just curious, in light of these seven mutations we're learning about, how much more risky is it to just go out to, say, the grocery store, even if you're masked, than perhaps before these mutations? I, I, would, I would sort of frame it like this, that we, we know these mutations now exist. What we still don't know is how widespread they are. I think, you know, part of this gets back to the subjective risk tolerance. I hear about mutations in my area and I have to now assume that the mutations are fairly widespread and that those, those, those strains, those new strains are more transmissible. So what would have otherwise been a, a chance sort of, you know, I see somebody quickly and, and I don't really worry about, uh, you know, a, a transmission happening. I think those chance sort of encounters that you got away with over the last several months, they become riskier now. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I don't think it means anything different other than be really, really diligent about all the things that we've been talking about. Don't, don't, don't get careless. Or, or double mask potentially. I mean, that was that's also been a topic of discussion. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, as always, thank you so much for your sharing your wisdom yeah, and uh, expertise with us. We appreciate it. <laughs> Meantime, the investigation into the insurrection on the Capitol is far from over. Breaking news in today coming from the House Speaker's office. Then CNN studied hours of new terrifying video of the insurrection that you didn't see during the impeachment trial. What it proves about the attack ahead.
Well, breaking news in our politics lead, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just announced plans for an independent 9-11 type investigation into the deadly Capitol insurrection. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live for us on Capitol Hill. So what exactly does this announcement mean, Ryan, and what happens next? Well, Pam, this is something the speaker has been hinting about for quite a while, but she made it formal today in a letter to her colleagues saying that the House will move forward by taking steps to form a 9-11 style commission to look into what happened on January 6th and the Capitol insurrection. Now, what this means is that the House will draw together what uh, will ultimately become a law, a statute that will have to be passed by both the House and Senate and then signed by President Biden that would form this commission. It would be an independent commission, meaning that no current Current lawmakers would be members of this commission. In fact, people not involved in, in the government. These would be people from different uh, aspects of security uh, and government uh, that have had experience with this that would look into it independently, much like the 9-11 Commission did in the days after that terrorist attack. Now, uh, this is something that many people have been calling for, saying there needs to be a full look into what went wrong that day so that changes and adjustments can be made going forward. Uh, it's expected to be met with uh, plenty of support from both sides of the aisle, as many people have said that this is something that needs to take place. Uh, of course, this comes out of these conversations that the Speaker's been having uh, with uh, Lieutenant General Russell Honore, of course, who was uh, in charge of the Katrina cleanup. He has been advising the Speaker about security and the fallout from the insurrection. Uh, she said in her letter to her colleagues today that Honore was, uh, said that this is something that was a necessary step. And of course, Pam, still a lot of security precautions here around the Capitol. The National Guard still stationed here. And all that fencing around the perimeter still exists. Pam? A, a reminder of what happened there on January 6th. Thanks so much, Ryan. And so far, at least 215 people have been charged in connection with the January 6th riots, and newly released videos paint an even more alarming picture of just how much worse the Capitol attack could have been. CNN's Tom Foreman takes a closer look. They have their spray in the crowd. They're the crowd. Look closely. There they are on the newly released security video. Nine men in matching tactical gear moving as a unit inside the Capitol. The Capitol has been breached on the east side. Through CNN's review of more than 800 urgent radio calls, astonishing security system videos, and terrifying body cam images assembled by the impeachment team, details are emerging that were not all shown in the trial, painting a sharper picture of just how big and coordinated the attack was. You're going to need to give us more help up here. We don't have enough people to hold the line. In this silent security video, when one entryway is breached, more than 150 rioters charge through in just a minute and a half, many wearing helmets, paramilitary gear, and carrying weapons and flagpoles, some used to strike officers. In other videos, you can see police trying to stop the mob with hand-to-hand -hand combat, only to be driven back by the sheer number of intruders who rapidly seized the corridor. And behind the first wave, other videos show rioters waving up reinforcements who come charging into the fray even as radios crackle through the afternoon with overwhelmed officers. We're getting spies things to from the top. When Vice President Mike Pence and his family were hustled out, the Secret Service appeared solidly in charge. But as Capitol Police stalked a stairway elsewhere in the building, guns drawn, another camera shows rioters only feet away taunting them, making obscene gestures, and not backing down. We lost the line! We lost the line! All of the need, come back! 
Our thanks to Tom Foreman for that report. Let's discuss all of this. We have Nia Malika Henderson and uh, Phil Bump with us. I want to start with this breaking news that just came out that we heard from Ryan there, Nia, uh, that Nancy Pelosi is announcing a 9-11 style commission uh, will get started. But will that only just keep the Trump in the spotlight? What do you think that that will do politically? Listen, I think this is in many ways beyond politics. It's for the good of the country to understand uh, what happened there, who these people were, what motivated uh, them. This was a terrorist attack. So, you know, this is a national security issue uh, at this point. And we've seen this done before, obviously. The 9-11 Commission uh, was something similar. You think about the Warren Commission uh, back when JFK uh, was assassinated. So this is something that the country is used to, kind of a, you know, laying out of what actually happened. You think about the breaches with the Capitol Police. Why did that happen? There's still so many questions mm-hmm. that the trial uh, did not answer. So I think this is an attempt uh, to, to really get a sense of why this happened and to prevent something like this going forward. So even though Democrats say they want to move on from Trump, the purpose of this um, is more important, obviously. And it's interesting that it's getting bipartisan support, rare bipartisan support we see on Capitol Hill. And you saw that video, uh, Phil. Tom just walked us through some of the really terrifying evidence that House managers were considering. But would any video or photo have convinced 10 more Republicans to convict President Trump, do you think? No, probably not. But again, to Nia's point, that's that's not really what this is about. I mean, the, the impeachment trial was very much focused on President Trump whether or not he could be held culpable for the events of January 6th. Obviously, without Trump having lied about the election for months, there was no January 6th. But the impeachment trial was very solidly focused on Trump's role in what happened prior to that date and then on that date. The real question, though, is how did all of this happen to Nia's point, right? I mean, there wasn't even a real attempt to try and dig into some of the complexities of what happened that day, simply because the case about Donald Trump was being made separately. And so there are these outstanding questions, like how did this happen? You know, I think it's important for people to remember, we're about a month and a half past this. There's still people being arrested. And there are still, for example, the guy who left those pipe bombs. Who was he? He hasn't been arrested yet. What, What was his role in this? Who were some of the people who were really behind orchestrating some of these events who haven't yet been arrested or identified by the FBI. There are a lot of the, you know, it was fairly easy, not to, you know, not to, not to say it's easy to do law enforcement work, but it was not that difficult for the people who were bragging on Facebook about having been there. It's the people who are more, who are, who are more capable of protecting their identities and hiding the information about themselves. Those people are still out there and they may have played a different role than the one we've come to expect. Yeah, that is the real concern for law enforcement officials. When you look at the impeachment vote, though, let's go back to that for a second. And and you look at the fallout from that for those Republicans that did get on board to convict those seven Republicans. We're seeing um, how essentially they're being punished. The North Carolina Republican Party is meeting today to vote on censuring censuring, uh, Senator Richard Burr for voting to convict President Trump. Senator Bill Cassidy has already been censured by the Louisiana Republican Party for his vote. Practically, what is the point of this? What does this actually do? And do you think more blowback is to come for the other Republicans who voted with Democrats against Trump? You know, I think this are this is an attempt by those uh, local Republicans to say that this is a party. The Republican Party is the party is the party of Donald Trump, uh, and to uh, you know essentially send that message to some of these folks. Some of these senators aren't running for re-election. Pat Toomey, for instance, so he won't have to worry about any kind of repercussions coming from uh, folks in his state in, in Pennsylvania. But some of these other people will face primary challenges. They'll face these kinds of censures, and we've seen this before. 
course, Cindy McCain censured by the Arizona Republican Party. I think Ben Sass also uh, censured uh, as well as Cheney, folks like that. So yeah, this is the Republican Party firmly saying that they are the party of Trump. And if you cross Donald Trump, you will face some consequences. That's why these folks are really did something brave and courageous because they certainly put uh, their careers on the line. If they want a future uh, in their state and the broader kind of Republican Party, uh, this will be an impediment in many ways to any future success they want to have within the party. And Senator Cassidy, for one, has come out to defend his vote to convict, saying this is about President Trump. Here's what he said. I think as force wanes, the Republican Party is more than just one person. The Republican Party is about ideas. Now, the American people want those ideas, but they want a leader who is accountable and a leader who they can trust. I think our leadership will be different going forward, but it will still be with those ideas. Do you think that's realistic, what we just heard from the senator, Phil? No, I don't. I think he's wrong. The, The era of Trump was really an era about whether the Republican Party was about cultural fights or political fights. And when Donald Trump won, that meant that the, the, the shift in the party was complete, that it was a party that was focused on cultural fights. And so when we see these things, when we see these censure motions being made against these elected officials, that is because they were not engaged in the cultural fight in the way that the base wanted them to be. Now, the question is, with Trump out of the way, with Trump having a lesser voice because he's not on social media, you know, can the Republican Party try and bring his base around to the idea that the fight that they're fighting is the cultural fight that they want to see? Well, you know, can they convert their policy priorities into this, you know, make the libs cry sort of style approach to politics? Maybe with Donald Trump not having as loud a voice, but, you know, it's easy for Donald Trump then to go on Fox News and give one interview and submarine everything that they're trying to do. So I think that Cassidy's presentation of what the party base is about is absolutely wrong. And I think that's that is the fundamental problem for the party at this point. All right. Nia Malika Henderson, Philip Bum, thank you so much. Thanks, Pam. Well, he was just acquitted by the Senate, but former President Donald Trump's legal worries are far from over. In fact, they could be growing. Welcome back to the special edition of The Lead. And we want to turn to our politics lead now because the Senate acquitted former President Donald Trump, but his legal troubles are far from over. It has only been three weeks since he left the White House and became a private citizen, and the list of criminal and civil threats is already growing. CNN's Kara Scannell joins me live to discuss. So walk us through, Kara, what former President Trump is facing now. Well, Pamela, like you said, the list is growing. And the most advanced investigation by far is the criminal investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. They're there looking into whether any state laws were violated by the president or his, or the, excuse me, the former president or his company, looking at such issues, potential violations of tax fraud or insurance fraud. Now, in Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office is investigating Trump's effort to overturn the state election results. There, the prosecutor is focusing in on the phone call where Trump had pressured the secretary of state to find the votes, find enough votes to swing the election in his favor. And in Washington, D.C., the Justice Department and the D.C. Attorney General are both investigating the insurrection. There, the former President Trump has expressed concern that he could be charged in that case. And we know that the top prosecutor overseeing the federal inquiry has made it clear that they are looking at all actors. Uh, But that's not the end of it. There's also the civil side, some of these civil investigations and lawsuits 
that Trump is facing, the New York attorney general is conducting a broad investigation into potential financial frauds. And in addition, he's facing two defamation lawsuits by women who have accused Trump of sexually assaulting them before he was president. Now, Trump has denied wrongdoing in all of these cases, and the Trump organization says it has complied with the law. Pamela? And how has his legal exposure changed since becoming a private citizen? Well, he's become much more vulnerable. On the criminal side, it it really is legally untested what would happen if a state or local prosecutor had indicted or announced criminal charges against a sitting president. We do know on the federal side, the Justice Department has a policy not to prosecute a, a sitting president. So this was something that was really up in the air and was likely to be fought in court. Uh, on the civil side, both of those defamation lawsuits had been placed on hold because uh, over the question of whether a sitting president could be sued in state court. So the bottom line is that citizen Trump is a lot more vulnerable than President Trump. Pamela? Right, that's the bottom line. Kara, thanks so much. And joining me now is constitutional law professor Michael Gerhardt. He also served as special counsel to Senator Patrick Leahy during last week's trial. Mike, thanks for coming on. Michael, I should say, most Republicans said that it was unconstitutional to try a president after he's left office. The majority, though, of constitutional scholars, it seems, have said it is constitutional. You can do this. So who gets to settle the score here? Is it sort of still this open question? I, well, I appreciate the chance to be here. And um, and also, I, I, I guess I should begin by just saying I'm just speaking for myself today and not, of course, uh, anybody in the Senate. Um, but I've already been on record as defending the constitutionality of a post-presidential impeachment. I think um, the direct answer to your question is that the Senate really got to decide. The Senate was the final decision maker on that. And so when a majority in the Senate voted to maintain jurisdiction, that is to keep the case and proceed, that resolved that issue for purposes of this trial. But what about potential future trials? Would it apply? Well, it's a good question. I think it, it in all likelihood, it will be what we in the law call persuasive authority. That means it doesn't bind, it doesn't force the Senate to do anything in particular, but it it has the it may influence what the Senate does. So it will support uh, the choice to maintain jurisdiction over somebody who's left office. I would point out that at least four times the Senate in its history has voted to maintain jurisdiction over somebody who's left office. So the Senate has been consistent on that point for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and so basically the bottom line here is if you're president and, at, and you're at the end of your term, under the Republican standard, you can commit any crime you want and not face political punishment. Is that essentially what they're saying here? I think that is what they were saying. Um, at the end, they said, well, maybe this president or uh, President Trump, for example, could face some kind of liability in civil or criminal action. But I think you're, you're correct that impeachment um, would, would become ineffective, uh, toothless in those last months of a presidency. And it's largely because impeachment, for example, this time was based not on an actual criminal offense. It was based on a political offense, an injury to the republic. Most impeachments are based not on violations of the law, but violations of the Constitution and political injury to the republic. And so the injury here that President Trump caused would not be redressable in a court later. And as we know, no impeachment has ever led to a conviction of a president. If you can't convict a president, obviously others have been convicted. What is the point of impeachment for a president? How much sway does it hold? 
That, that, that again is a terrific question, and it's the big question I think impeachment has to face right now. You're absolutely right. For every president who's faced an impeachment trial, that president has been acquitted. And I think what we've learned is that the system we've inherited from the framers makes removal or disqualification, each of which might require two-thirds of the Senate, makes them virtually impossible. If a president's political party backs him throughout the entire impeachment trial, impeachment basically becomes a nullity. And so we're discovering that impeachment may at best be a tarnishment of the person's legacy. Uh, It may be sort of what you might think of as a shot across the bow. It's not something presidents aspire to get, um, but it might, and so it does leave a mark on them and a mark on their legacy, maybe even on their political future, but it's not going to result in their removal from office or disqualification from ever serving again in office. Do you think the fact that Congress has once again acquitted a president has siphoned power away from the legislative branch and make the executive branch more powerful? I think it was Ben Sass. Um, he argued that uh, in his statement. I think Senator Sass is, is absolutely correct. I think that what happens when presidents get acquitted, as has happened twice with uh, Mr. Trump, that makes the presidency stronger and it makes Congress weaker. Impeachment was supposed to be the primary mechanism Congress had for holding a president accountable for his misconduct in office. But if impeachment doesn't work, if it doesn't hold the president accountable, then presidents know they can do these bad things. They can engage in the misconduct or maybe worse and not fear uh, removal or any kind of sanction as long as they keep their political party uh, together in the Senate. Well, and, and even legally, um, as we were just talking about with Kara, it's, it hasn't been tested to prosecute a president in office. And DOJ's president, I believe, is, is to not uh, to do that. So um, that's really interesting in that, in that context as well. Michael Gerhardt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, you get a $1,400 check. President Biden now racing to get his COVID rescue plan passed with Trump's impeachment behind him. And turning to our politics lead now with Trump's impeachment in the rearview mirror, President Biden is putting the pressure on Congress to pass his $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And with unemployment benefits expiring for millions of Americans in less than a month from now, it's a race against the clock to get something passed, as CNN's Phil Mattingly reports. President Joe Biden back at the White House with one major issue off of his plate. The Senate acquittal of his predecessor clearing the way for Biden, not Donald Trump, to move to center stage. Thrusting his top priority, a $1.9 trillion coronavirus aid package, to the forefront, lawmakers pressed to get a final proposal to his desk, underscoring a pandemic that, while improving nationwide, still sits in a harrowing place. We are still at about 100,000 cases a day. We are still at around 1,500 to 3,500 deaths per day. The cases are more than two and a half fold times what we saw over the summer. The Biden administration today reopening Obamacare enrollment. The White House hoping some of the 15 million uninsured and eligible for Obamacare policies, including 9 million who qualify for federal assistance, will enroll. But Biden, in a statement, using the enrollment to pitch his cornerstone legislative goal, noting it would, quote, ramp up testing, tracing and our national vaccination program to get shots into as many arms as possible as quickly as we can. 
Democrats on Capitol Hill speeding to turn the bill into law, with House Democratic leaders planning to vote next week, even without any GOP support. As of right now, um, you're right, we don't have the votes to get that done. One key plank, the $15 minimum wage, remains a tough sell with razor-thin Democratic majorities. Two Senate Democrats already signaling opposition, leaving the key progressive priority in limbo. But Biden hitting the road this week to sell his plan, the first domestic trips for the new president in Wisconsin on Tuesday for a CNN town hall, then to Michigan on Thursday, all as he seeks to rally the country around a plan that still lacks any GOP congressional support. We're still working every day to see if we can earn Republican support for the plan. But what we won't do is slow down and not meet the needs of the American people by just waiting. And Pamela, that approach underscores the necessity not to just sell the plan publicly, as you're going to see the president do over the course of the next several days, but also working behind the scenes with Democrats. Obviously, narrow majorities in the House and the Senate. And White House aides tell me they are working very closely with those majorities, the leadership level, the committee chairs, to ensure each detail of this package not only lines up with what President Biden has laid out, but also lines up with what can pass, recognizing that there are different elements of the Democratic caucus in different places. However, all of them all of them will be necessary in order to get this across the finish line into the president's desk. That is the focus, as much as selling it publicly, but behind the scenes over the course of the next several weeks, Pamela. All right, Phil Mightingly, live for us from the White House. Thanks so much, Phil. And be sure to tune in to CNN tomorrow night for an exclusive presidential town hall. President Joe Biden will join Anderson Cooper live from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. And new calls for impeachment over the handling of the coronavirus pandemic. But the target isn't Donald Trump. In our health lead now, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo under fire from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle over allegations his administration covered up nursing home deaths. He's now speaking out. Cuomo took responsibility for not sharing information on nursing homes fast enough but denies there was a cover-up. And now there are calls for Cuomo's impeachment and prosecution, as CNN's Bryn Grass reports. We made a mistake. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo finally speaking out days after his top aide admitted their office withheld data for months about COVID-19 deaths of nursing home residents. Cuomo acknowledging on Monday that the data was not provided soon enough. In retrospect, we should have prioritized providing more information. But arguing that the state's death counts were accurate and that information was not hidden. To be clear, all the deaths in the nursing homes and in the hospitals were always fully, publicly, and accurately reported. Until late last month, New York only accounted separately for people who died from COVID-19 in long-term care facilities like nursing homes. But the data didn't include the number of residents from those facilities who died after they were transferred to a hospital or elsewhere. The public had many questions and concerns, and the press had many questions about nursing homes primarily. And I understand that they were not answered quickly enough. The tipping point came when, in a private video call, the governor's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, told Democratic state lawmakers they delayed giving updated information to them after then-President Trump's Department of Justice sent an inquiry about nursing home deaths in the state because, quote, 
Basically, we froze because then we were in a position where we weren't sure if what we were going to give to the Department of Justice or what we give to you guys, what we start saying was going to be used against us. Her words, an admission that the administration stalled on showing a true picture of just how many nursing home residents died, just as the governor was lauded globally for his pandemic response. Between his Emmy for his coronavirus press briefings, to Governor Cuomo's book, to his speech at the Democratic National Convention, Governor Cuomo has been held up as the model governor in his coronavirus response, even though New York was so hard hit by the virus early on. Cuomo arguing today much of the same as his top eight, that the request for data from former President Trump's Department of Justice was politically motivated, but took priority over the state legislature's request. Everybody was working 24 hours a day. Everybody was overwhelmed. We were in the midst of dealing with a pandemic and trying to save lives. They were answering DOJ. He's now taking heat from both sides of the New York legislature. The gravity of this cover-up cannot be overstated. Republicans declaring he should be investigated, some even using the word impeachment. Andrew Cuomo must be prosecuted and Andrew Cuomo must be impeached if this evidence exists. And Democrats are actively discussing drafting a bill to strip Cuomo of his emergency powers. You're only sorry that you all got caught, tweeted Democratic Senator Alessandra Biaggi. And approximately 15,000 long-term care facility residents died from COVID-19 in the state of New York. That's about a third of the totals here in the state, according to the Department of Health. But the big question here is what the governor said today. Is that going to be enough to ward off any investigations? And Pam, it's unclear at this point if everyone is comforted by this. And it's very possible that this political fallout will be something that lingers for the governor as he possibly seeks re-election. He is up for re-election next year. Pam. All right, Bren, thank you so much for the latest there. Meantime, over in Texas, of all places, slammed with snow, ice, and temperatures near zero, and it could get worse soon. That's next. Well, dangerous winter weather is pounding large parts of the nation, threatening nearly 170 million people. At least 11 people have died in weather-related accidents across the South. The governor of Kentucky is warning winter storms could slow down vaccination sites. CNN meteorologist Tom Sater joins me live. So what can we expect in the days to come, Tom? Uh, Pamela, this is a multi-day event, and we're only getting uh, rid of the first batch of snow and ice, and it is causing a world of problems. After you get through the shock and awe of all the snow and the cold, you're now looking at what could be a humanitarian crisis. Our numbers look like this. Air temperatures mentioned to you yesterday when I was with you that Houston, for the very first time, is under a winter storm, or I should say a, a wind chill warning. They remain that way. They're at 26 degrees. But it's not just this cold. It's those that do not have power and those that will lose power in the hours ahead. Notice the uh, departure from normal. I mean, 43 degrees colder than it should be in Houston. 250 cold temperature records most likely will be broken. And if you look at 
just Texas. I mean, we've got 31% of the state is without power, 4.3 million, and millions more could lose their power in the hours ahead. The icing is significant right now. Crews cannot come from out of state to help restore power, uh, Pamela, because they're dealing with their own problems. Wednesday into Thursday, another round of record snow and crippling ice moves from the Southern Plains to New England. Watch out, it's gonna get worse in the Ohio Valley this evening. Yeah, this seems like one for the record books. Thanks, Tom. And you can follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN or tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.